This is Dune Talk, a DuneNewsNet.com production. Join us now for the latest Dune news, reactions, and lively discussions. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Dune Talk. This is the official show of DuneNewsNet.com where we cover everything happening in the universe of Dune, whether it's the movies, books, games, or future TV shows. Last show, we discussed the highlights from the Dune Part 2 official trailer, but there's still so much to explore. This is Marcus Gabriel, your editor at DuneNewsNet.com, and today I'm looking forward to do, doing a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown with the Dune Talk crew. Hey, everybody. It's Garen. Um, it's good to be back. Really enjoyed our last podcast, uh, just being able to, to talk about this trailer. Now we're going to go deep into it, and I've I've actually done my homework, so so I have some stuff to share today. Yes, thanks everyone for joining us once again. Great episode last week. Uh, thank you for all the support. Um, tuning in for that one, giving us some feedback and comments. Happy to hear everyone's opinions and thoughts on the trailer and really excited to take a deeper dive here with everyone. Hey, Simon here. Like Johnny said, last week was a lot of fun. Uh, two weeks in a row, boys. Back to normal. Uh, as normal as we can be. Also, thank you to the person that says I look like Gurney. I know I need a haircut and a beard trim, but that's as far as I get with Gurney. Dune Movie News. Okay, so before we dive in, uh, please note that we're going in-depth uh, into the context of some of these scenes, and there will be spoilers for events uh, in the Dune novel. The trailer opens with a special moment between uh, Chani and Paul. Uh, they're sitting out there on the sand dunes. Uh, this appears to be taking place, I would say, relatively early on in the film, uh, before the sandworm rides, uh, likely. Uh, Paul's eyes are not yet that uh, blue and blue that we see later on in the trailer. And they're growing closer to each other. There's a feeling of playfulness. Uh, war and worries are still feeling really distant. So looking at the scene, similar to the opening of in Caldan when we had in Dune Part, part 1, uh, where we get to see that breakfast with Paul and Jessica, we get to see the ceremony, it feels that this will be one of those scenes uh, that expands on um, elements from the book. So like... Going back to the book, you, you had uh, the funeral of, uh, of Jamis, and then Shani says to Paul, uh, tell me about the waters of your birth world, uh, Paul Maudib. Uh, but Paul answers, another time, Shani, I promise. So this is, you know, maybe that scene that, that happens off screen in the book that we're, we're getting to see now. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really good to see that uh, director Denis Villeneuve is, is keeping room for these types of quieter scenes uh, to develop the characters. Like in the recent interview, he, he said about Shani and Paul, the most important thing is that spark, that relationship. If we don't capture that, there's no movie. The epicenter of the story is this relationship. Then we get the logos, and then we briefly see uh, Lady Jessica in a protective shelter with uh, Fremen around her. They're on top of a sandworm uh, traveling across the, the desert. So going by her facial tattoos, this is after she's taken the water of life and become a reverend mother. She's now a greatly respected religious leader of the Fremen, uh, in addition to being uh, the mother of the one who they believe is their prop prophet. So basically, she's a very important person. They're looking to pr protect her, keeping her safe from, uh, from the sun and, and, and the elements. Then as that scene uh, fades, we hear the narration of Princess Erlan begin. Um, Marcus, by the way, I think that scene with Ponchani might be right before the sandworm writing. That's just my opinion. But as we continue on the trailer, Erlon talks about the fall of 
House of Trades, which is great because it also reminds people that may have only seen the movie once that Paul's house, Royal House, was completely destroyed. And also the Erlon stuff reminds me very much of the opening chapter of every book. I mean, every chapter in Dune. Um, Jessica and Paul are talking also as the question is, what if Paul Trades is still alive? And that shot where he's just walking out of the desert, kind of out of focus, is probably one of my favorite shots as I was thinking about it. Uh, also, we get a fast glimpse at Bernie Halleck, which I have a love-hate relationship because I feel like that should have been a surprise. But also, you know, his name is on the poster. So obviously we know Josh Brolin's back and there was a Vanity Fair picture of him. So, but quick little image of, you know, Pirate Gurney. Yeah, and they're certainly not, not keeping that a secret, right? Because they, they even had in the comics books, uh, the, the Water of, of Conley, where you get to see the story of how, uh, you know, after the fall of Arakeen, uh, Gurney actually joined the smugglers and he was with them for, for two years, like seeking to get uh, revenge on the Harkonnens. At 40 seconds into the trailer, uh, you've got this, this really dark, uh, almost uh, plain black image, and then it's it's opening up, and this is the gladiator fight uh, between Fade. Uh, this is on this is on uh, Gidi Prime, and this is the the moment where we actually uh, see the fight between him and the gladiator. This is on his birthday. It's a celebration um, on Gidi Prime in the capital city of Harco, and what what I really like about what what Villeneuve has done with the design of uh, of Fade is it's accurate uh, to the book where he's got he's got both knives in either hand, um, but but he's he's got the shaved head he's got the light skin he's matching the the Harkonnen uh, design that was established in Part One and and it's even uh, in black and white at least that's how it appears in the in the trailer so. You know, on a, on a planet like Gidi Prime, there just isn't a lot of color. And so I think it's just, you know, emphasizing uh, that design element. Just really excited to see the, the further detail of that gladiator scene, because that, that scene has a lot of intrigue and complexity going on behind the scenes as we're, as we're seeing uh, Fade fight this gladiator, who is who is supposed to be drugged typically so that uh, it's kind of an easy kill, but it's more complicated this time. There's there's some plans within plans going on behind the scenes. So this is an exciting uh, moment that I'm, I'm glad we're getting a glimpse of. The next scene or the next uh, image is kind of unique because in part one, when we see those images of Arrakis and the, heart, the uh, sand dunes going off into the distance, it's it's more of a tan sort of natural color to the to the to the dunes and the sand. And what we have here, um, I couldn't help but think back to to David Lynch's '84 film because a lot of times in that original film, there the the sky was kind of an orangey color. There was sort of an orange hue uh, at certain moments of that original film, and this almost felt like kind of an, an homage to that um, in in kind of a, a nerdy way. I went and just searched the original Dune book and I looked for the, the word orange. And orange obviously is is mentioned a lot in the book because of the Orange Catholic Bible, but there isn't a lot of description of the, the sky or uh, the, the planet itself being orange. But 
I'm kind of interested to see kind of this contrast. Johnny was talking about this, I think, last week, where we kind of have this black and white contrast with these really bright colors that we didn't get in part one, which is more of a, a similar uh, pal color palette going throughout. I really like the next shot, which is, uh, I want to believe it's an ornithopter and there's some sort of a machine gun mounted on the side shooting. Um, it doesn't appear to be a laser gun. It appears to actually be um, a gun shooting bullets or something of that nature. So excited about that. We have a really uh, interesting image of Lady Margot Fenring, who, again, will play a really big role in that gladiator scene because she and her husband are basically there on an errand for the emperor to kind of do some, some espionage, as it were. So um, I really like her, her dress, the, the dark uh, black dress that she's in. She also has a very light skin tone, which is a little bit reminiscent of the, the Harkonnen uh, facial design, but uh, not, not sure that uh, connection there. Uh, an image here where we see um, I can't tell exactly who it is, but people, it looks like they're entering a, a siege or, or um, a water cairn where, where they're going to see the water uh, in the sieges, uh, which, which is something that we know um, is, is they are, they are uh, storing large amounts of water underneath the surface of, of Arrakis, and that appears to be what that is. And then we see a quick image of the water of life. Someone is actually holding the water of life, which, which we know uh, to be um, the essence from, from the inside of a, a sandworm. And she will actually, uh, Lady Jessica will actually drink that. And that's the process that she goes through to then become uh, a reverend mother. And, and so we, we see a glimpse of that. We also see Paul, again, this orange design, I'm not sure what this connection is going to be, but an orange design of Paul fighting on the desert. I could be dead wrong, you guys, but it, it almost looked a little bit um, like maybe this could be, you know, Sardaukar or that's not the Sardaukar uh, uniform, but um, it, it's a design that kind of the helmet and, and there's not a lot of movement in the head. I couldn't quite figure out who this is. I'm sure you guys have some ideas, but clearly uh, Paul is very adept at fighting. He's, his movements are really crisp, and he's really commanding with his his weapon. And again, that orange design, which I'm 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 really kind of liking. <laughs> yeah, um, real quick, Garen, to your point, that was something watching rewatching the trailer the first dozen times <laughs> that I that I watched it. I was also very bewildered by the design of the suits that that uh paul was fighting those those two soldiers in and i couldn't it seemed familiar but then it was also very different from certain designs that we had seen especially not really reminiscent of the sardaukar um it just doesn't have the same shape it's more bulbous um and going back the only place it appears and what gives it away is who this is is in the opening prologue of part one Harkonnen soldiers that are guarding the spice harvesters that have the cloaks and like the capes on oh, yeah. they have a, a the bulbous rounded domed helmet um and they have capes on so you can't really see their backs or their shoulders but it is that same design and actually later on in the trailer I think one of us will be touching on this shot in particular um you see a group of these soldiers standing in a room 
and you can get a little bit clearer vision of them and they the, from the front especially holding their rifles you they match up perfectly with those harkonnen soldiers in part one the more i thought about the colors this past week visions who knows it is possible it is possible black and white can be visions the blood orange could be a vision i mean let's not forget there was a whole range of color palette in the last movie with paul's Mm -hmm. visions yeah you know what i mean you might really be onto something there because the, the way villeneuve does that that light refraction on the images when paul's having those visions that color that color kind of matches that orange so you you might be onto something there and it would be Mm. weird to not have visions when they were such a big part of the first film if they cut out the visions i i know personally i would be disappointed in that because it is (laughs) crucial i definitely could see it being visions because as we as you just mentioned and we've discussed in the past color was used pretty precisely in part one to highlight those more like extraordinary vision sequences um my one thing that it could be that the counterpoint that i can think of is the few shots that we get in the trailer that have that bright orange hue they seem like just normal it seems like a normal sequence it doesn't stand out as like framed or shot in the same way that the visions in part one were even in part one if you remember it wasn't consistent all the way through but a lot of the time the visions were played out and again this is all being edited so it could change they could be tricking us but a lot of times the visions were uh played out in slow motion or the speed was tampered with in some way in this little scrum that we have with paul and these two harkonnen soldiers it plays out like you would expect a real fight it goes at full speed just like everything else in the trailer um and even this the shot that's my background right now that i chose it's just kind of a it's just a shot that's pushing in like garen mentioned you get plenty of shots like that in part one as they're flying on ornithopters and things like that and it doesn't really stand out as anything really kind of you would expect in a vision i mean paul fighting two harkonnen soldiers on a dune isn't really an extraordinary moment i mean you would kind of expect that to happen so it could be a vision and it i think maybe more likely than not but i am very curious i can't really think of another explanation for the color honestly however that could be i'm just going to throw out a wild theory here there's really no grounds for it or maybe you geniuses that know the book much better than i do will remind me of something uh, that i've forgotten and my a theory that i have is that what is a phenomenon that has been referenced and brought up during part one, during the first trailer, it's been used in the imagery from the film, um, posters and, and the logo. There's this recurrence of an eclipse image or some sort of natural phenomenon occurring at some point. Um, and again, I don't know if there's any basis. I don't believe there's any basis in the book for it, but I wonder if somehow there's going to be some sort of yeah i guess you could almost call it like a supernatural or some sort of it's not quite rain falling at the end of lynch's film but i wonder if somehow there could be something with and even in the there's a shot in the trailer later on that we might reference but you see the bright orange of the sun and then the two moons coming in front of it so i'm wondering if there's something there that might be some sort of climactic or you know um, kind of midpoint of the film where 
an eclipse could cause the atmosphere, the the sky and the the environment to change. And that's kind of some big demarcation within the story. That's just a wild theory of my own. Might just be a vision, might be some creative expressionist, you know, feeling that Villeneuve is going for, but I just really like the aesthetic of it. Like you've all pointed out, it's definitely a nostalgic kind of feel to it. So um, I'm really excited to just see how that's implemented. I'm sure it just won't be those few shots. Could be a whole portion of the movie for all we know. What if it's an eclipse vision? And let's not forget in the first <laughs> trailer that we ever had, they did play a version of Pink Floyd's eclipse. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're, you're spot on there. So yeah, very, very interesting. But yeah, Garen, I totally agree. I think that's going to be a really intriguing part of the movie at least from a visual standpoint if it doesn't mean anything for the story necessarily and so kind of moving into the next section of the trailer we get a brief shot of fade you know we we already touched on his introduction in the trailer this is kind of the other key shot that we get of him in the um, arena that's a close-up like tight on his face and it's him just kind of like letting out like a kind of almost barbaric kind of scream um at this point and it it's right before we cut to a transition in the trailer but before we get to that just the shot itself i think is it's intriguing because it is it's it will for a couple reasons the one thing that i didn't notice until much later when i was kind of you know again kind of filing through the different shots is if you see in the far back left background and then it just right over the shoulder of fade to the right of the frame there's these two pitch black figures with these like arced almost horned hats or or helmets and they're flanking fade there you see them in other shots of the arena where they're kind of in the far distant background i don't know if these are almost like you know in the glad old gladiator arenas i guess they would have you know people basically manning the arena to facilitate the uh, the gladiator fights and things like that I don't know if they're supposed to be looking out for fate or if they're supposed to be assisting him or what's going on with that. But just the designs and the silhouettes of these characters are incredible. Um, again, I've mentioned this on my Twitter, like just the designs and the the kind of style that Vilnov is using with some of these characters is really intriguing um, from the colors that we were just talking about from the black and white, the orange, and now these costumes here. Again, we don't have a very clear image of them, but they're very striking um, in just their body shape and the 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 silhouette that we get. So I thought that was one of the more interesting, but kind of under under maybe seen parts of the trailer. Um, and then to for Fade himself, just real quick, he is again he he seems like a um, psychotic almost. Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like feral kind of fighter. And one of my questions that I'm, I'm, we're not going to be able to figure out for a while, you know, to come until we get more footage of Fade is, is this really Fade how he acts, or is this some sort of performative, um, you know, persona that he's using in the arena? Because we'll we'll talk about Fade. He shows up a little bit later in the trailer, a couple later shots that are to- a totally different vibe that we get from fade later on and his even his appearance seems to be a little bit different so i'm wondering is he just like is he someone that's just as as Villeneuve described him a psychotic mick jagger is he just someone who can flip a switch and go from being feral and animalistic to being more suave or calm in that in that way maybe that's what it is or is it even more deep where like i said he is putting on 
almost like a persona that he is this, you know, just brute, almost like Raban is, but in a more, I guess, charismatic or, or almost suave kind of a way. Um, just because it is, it is very interesting and you can see it in other parts of the clip, but he, it's so in your face and compare his look in this shot where he's screaming to the close-up of him when he walks out into the arena, when it's just the close-up, he's completely still and no one can see him yet though. The doors are opening. So I'm just wondering, I think that could be a pretty interesting way to approach the character and it wouldn't be totally different from the text really, I think in some ways. So, um, very cool there and then getting into the one of the centerpiece uh, really the centerpiece of the entire trailer um we were transitioned into it uh from a quick cut to from fade to a close-up of lady jessica she tilts her head back and her eyes pop open and surprise they're blue um so i thought and i love the sound design in this part of the trailer too it just quickly cuts it's very intense and it's ratcheting up and then it just goes silent and that silence leads us into the warm riding sequence um and just kind of quickly going through this um it's the thumper we're all familiar with that they're kind of invoking that uh you know familiar prop from the first movie and people are going to immediately kind of know what that means and what they're doing um, putting that into the sand i really love in this sequence something that i highlighted in, in my analysis or kind of what i've been talking about on twitter is immediately villeneuve Again, sand, sandworm writing, it's something we talked about last episode quite a bit. How do you make that realistic? Or how do you make it grounded? And when I say that, it's not like, oh, like it's a real thing that would happen in reality, but just something you can latch onto and like be in the shoes of the character as it's as you're seeing it or as it's happening with Paul. And one of the great things that Villeneuve does and Frazier does, Greg Frazier, the cinematographer, and they did this a lot. I mean, they do this all the time. Um, uh, Villeneuve did it in 2049. He did it in, in part one. But there are shots where, for example, you have uh, Chani, she, her back of her head is on the left side of the frame and then in, in shallow focus and in the distance, the entire rest of the frame is taken up by the dune and Paul standing on top of it. So you just immediately understand the scale, the distance, um, and you have an idea of how big the dune is, how far away Paul is from Chani. And it's like, you're we're spectators just like Chani and the Fremen are seeing Paul um, kind of take on this challenge. And, and then we also get from a distance, we get those. And then the contrast is we have these closer intimate shots that are close-ups on Paul's face or were over his shoulder or right against his body. Um, I thought that was, that was really nice. And that those quick shots are kind of intercut with this dialogue between Paul and Stilgar as he Stilgar um, kind of, uh, I guess you could say cautions him to not try and show off, don't impress anyone. And that is uh, from my understanding, I, I don't remember it myself, but I I've seen people say that's dialogue essentially straight from the book. So I thought that was pretty cool too. Um, and uh, you kind of understand that they already have this almost like a father son relationship. You know, it's the same way that, that the Duke would kind of uh, teach up Paul in certain moments or that we saw interactions with them, the first movie. Um, so I thought that was great. And then, like I said, these shots of Paul, he, there's a, another shot similar to the Chani shot I mentioned earlier, Paul's back of his head or the side of his head on is on one side of the frame close to his shoulder. And in the distance, we see the open desert and then the sand flying up as the worm approaches again, just giving a great sense of scale, um, size and, uh, and kind of this, the actual, 
distance between the worm and Paul as it approaches. And then one of my other favorite shots of the trailer, a couple of them in quick succession, we have this epic long shot of the dune um, with Paul on top of it. And you can just see it's he looks so tiny up there um, as as he like runs along and we just see him like from behind and kind of like I said at a distance. Um, he's like hauling ass <laughs> and you just know like it's just ratcheting up the tension as like the sand kind of starts to sink in and the worm you know is getting closer and closer but he's just running full speed along the dune and then we get a quick shot behind him as he approaches the the drop-in point and the sand continues to churn and then we follow him off the side of the dune and in as he drops in on top of the worm and we kind of just stick with him all the way through the sands falling everywhere. There's like wind whipping, there's like atmospheric kind of like CG, like dust. It all just feels really like it's like textural and like you feel like you're actually right in Paul's, like you can like taste the the sand getting in your mouth. Um, I just think it, it just gives a great kind of sense of uh, the experience that Paul's having. And then cuts to, of course, he seems to be latching on. He gets on with one of his hooks and then it cuts uh, to Paul kind of chatting back to Stilgar like, oh yeah, nothing fancy. And then of course he's climbed up on, we cut to, we don't see him climbing the worm. We just cut to him being on top of the worm and him throwing the hook um, to grab onto like the scales and, and make sure that he's uh, not going to fall off. And then he gets both hands on and, and kind of stands up straight. And of course the Fremen go crazy and are cheering and, we get another great shot that kind of pans across, which I think is great um, to give you an idea. The cool thing about this is we don't see the worm in its entirety, uh, clearly at least. It's all either so close up on Paul that we can't see the entire worm or at this shot that's coming up here in, a dis in the distance, the camera pans across the whole desert as the worm goes by. You can't see it. There's dust kicking up everywhere, but you can barely make it out. And the Fremen are all just standing either next to the camera or in front of the camera, and it's just going right across. So again, just reestablishing the scale and that perspective from the uh, the Fremen, like the crowd that's cheering Paul on. So I think there's, again, there's been kind of different takes on this and how people feel about it. I think it was really great and smart that they included this scene in the trailer because this is probably the first scene of, in the movie that we get of someone riding a worm, probably. I mean... We got someone, we got a very quick glimpse of someone riding at the end of part one. That just clues the audience in on that they use worms for transportation and other things. They ride the worms. And so what's the next logical progression? Paul needs to get and learn how to ride a worm. So I think this is going to be kind of a fun scene similar to, uh, you know, I hate to, I, I know people maybe are not fans of this movie, but Avatar, um, which takes a lot of inspiration from Dune. Um, but the scene where... Uh, Jake Sully, he has to learn how to ride the banshees and he climbs up the mountain and he gets all these different instructions from Neytiri and, and the other Navi. And then he has to learn how to hop on it and latch up its mouth and then take off. So I think it's going to be, it's going to be a really exhilarating sequence. And I think this is just, obviously it's quickly cut. It's just a taste of it. Um, but it's certainly not spoiling anything or, or giving too much away as far as the other big worm scenes uh, are concerned for later in the story. So I think it was just a great, great way to kind of center the trailer and also give you a better sense of the action and like the adventure kind of tone of the movie that we're going to get in some some stretches, um, which is going to be pretty different, I think, from part one and what people kind of experience with that. Yeah, and then after that uh, truly epic ride, we cut to one of Garen's favorite shots. 
So as with all due respect to how important sandworms will be in part two and how awesome they are, <laughs> the world gave a collective sigh of relief when they saw not one, not two, but 11 ornithopters. Did you actually count them? them? Okay, I just want to make sure everyone is clear that this was a do or die for me. Will Did you there actually be count all 11 of them? Did you actually stop and like freeze frame and go one, two, three? I'm, I'm, I may have done that, Simon. Yeah. Hey, there might okay. there might be even more off frame, Gary. Right, I don't yeah. know. It's an armada. The, the the ornithopter to me is like the second most important character in this film, and I was so relieved to see it. And and of course, the ornithopters are going to be in the book. They do play a a sort of minor role in all of the the forthcoming battles that everyone is going to experience in this part two. Um, but. I would like to believe that Villeneuve is actually going to incorporate them even more just because of just the design is just so awesome. So it's a beautiful shot um, of, the, of these ornithopters going into the distance. Um, I, I think that's uh, actually shot in Jordan, um, but it's it's the Arrakis that we that we know uh, from part one. And it's just a just a gorgeous shot. Quick, quick question, Garen, for the ornithopter, an ornithopter expert. Um, I, I thought when I first saw the shot and went back and I've rewatched it, of course, do you think, yes or no, do you think these are a new model or a new version of Ornithopter? Because it does look slightly different. I mean, it's we're seeing it from behind, so it's hard to yeah. tell, but like there's like landing gear like hanging down or something from what I can see. And I don't remember that being on the ones in part one. Yeah, yeah, Johnny, you have a keen eye, my friend. Um, <laughs> I, I do think, though, if you remove that landing gear, or maybe they're even like uh, rocket launchers, who knows what those are exactly? Yeah. Those have the same general design. Uh, yeah. Of, of at least the Harkonnen uh, uh, ornithopters that were chasing Paul and Jessica through the storm. From yeah. behind, it looks almost identical with that design. But you're right. There's something different about the landing gear or or other ordnance that is attached to those. Right. So, Definitely. Yeah, good observation. Now we get another shot again in the black and white of of Giddy Prime of Fade fighting the gladiator again. It's just from a different angle. What I love about the beginning of this shot is you see how massive the gladiator arena is. Uh, the book doesn't actually give the it gives the design being a triangle, but it doesn't actually give you a sense of how vast uh, the the stadium is. But the way all mm -hmm. has designed this, it's just it's massive. It's bigger than any NFL stadium that I've ever seen. So it's it's really uh, a beautiful design. Um, we we see at least according to the book, the gladiator that he's fighting is taller than him. It appears to be that way in these in these brief shots. So we've got some accuracy of being true to the book there. Um, and there's one thing that does it does describe in the book that as they begin fighting, uh, Fade uh, puts a barb into his arm. And, and uh, we don't, I couldn't see it as I just sort of stopped each frame. Uh, but maybe that happens a moment later uh, in the image that we're seeing here. But um, I, I'm just, again, you, I love the intensity of the fighting, I think. You know, I, I remember uh, Austin Butler talking about how intensive his training was and how, and you can just see that, that, that uh, uh, just the, the, the way the movement is and the, the, the quick motions, it's just, it's really amazing. And remember, Fade is the nemesis of, 
of uh, Paul, right? Fade was supposed to, he, he's continuing generations of bloodline uh, genetic manipulation so that he was supposed to uh, marry and, and mate with uh, Lady Jessica's daughter that then would produce the Kwisatz Haderach. So, so we're going to see that Fade is incredibly skilled and, and uh, his, his movements and his ability to control his body is just going to be well above you know, the average person. And I think we get a glimpse of that, of that intensity here in these scenes. And we see uh, Lady Fenring, and she's kind of like in a, she's got uh, binoculars that she's holding up kind of in a, in, in a very like 18th century, 19th century kind of thing where she's uh, looking down into the gladiator arena uh, so that she can, she can see fade. And there, as you know, if you've read the book, there, there's a relationship going on there where um, even Fade is almost, he's almost flirting with Lady Fenring and Lady Fenring is, is quite interested in him, but it not, it might not be uh, genuine. There, there's <laughs> other things going on in the background there that I won't talk about, but um, <laughs> there's a plan behind that. Uh, but you see her being very interested in watching, watching Fade. There's um, always a plan, Garen. Always, it's never quite what it appears, right? So <laughs> yep. there's a very quick image of what appears to be um, a reverend mother. I would like to believe this is actually Lady Jessica uh, mm. because it, it, she has a very uh, high uh, kind of headdress and, and a veil over her face. Um, and I, I, and I, see, I see clearly Fremen in the background. So I'd like to believe that this is, this is an image where... Uh, Lady Jessica has now fully come into the uh, role of a, of a reverend mother uh, for the Fremen. Um, and then finally, I, I have a, a moment where um, Paul and just Paul and Chani rather uh, kiss. And this is something that was alluded to in Paul's visions in part one. Um, Paul was trying to figure out his visions. He hadn't quite learned how to interpret the visions he was receiving. Sometimes Ch those images of Chani was uh, loving him or or appearing to be interested in him and then suddenly she's pulling a knife out of him and so he he hadn't quite figured out how to uh, discern you know what his what his visions were and whether they were truthful or not and yet here now we see in the trailer that in part two they really are in that relationship that that loving relationship where they where they will be married and and so seeing them kiss I think is important to be in the trailer because we see them in the opening, as, as Marcus described, but now we see that they have a full-blown relationship if they're actually kissing each other. So that's important to the story. And then we have several quick shots. They really go by in a flash, but these are very intriguing. Uh, first, we see uh, Shishakli. She's kneeling on the ground. Uh, she's apparently been captured. Um, as Johnny brought up earlier, these appear to be Harkonnen soldiers, uh, but in the more distinctive uh, armor suits. Uh, some other details. On the ground next to her, there appear to be two Cielagos. So in the book, those are basically described as bats uh, that the Fremen used for communication. They do look a bit like more like birds uh, here, but in any case, this indicates that the Fremen were trying to get a message out, uh, but that this trance was uh, intercepted and the Harkons uh, were able to take control of the siege. So a couple of uh, interesting things going on here, and it, this may be a scene that was mentioned in the book or something original. Uh, we'll get into that in, in a moment. 
Uh, and then we have a quick shot of Princess Irlan. So <laughs> here she's wearing a full metal headdress and it seems like she's armored up, uh, likely due, due to being somewhere dangerous. That's definitely not in the book. And uh, there are a couple of theories to bring up here. First, uh, at the beginning of the trailer, she's questioning, what if Paul Atreides is still alive, right? Well, uh, what if she's investigating that personally by going to Arrakis undercover? Uh, we didn't see that in the first film, but maybe now we'll get to see a disguised uh, Sardaukar, like wearing those Harkonnen armors. Um, in any case, uh, Irlan would be seeking out whether there's any truth uh, to those uh, rumors of Muad'Dib and, uh, you know, the connections there. Another possibility, what if similar to the Dune miniseries that was uh, released in 2000, she could be joining uh, Lady Margot on a trip to Getty Prime and maybe trying to obtain some uh, intel behind the scenes there. Then there's that uh, beautiful shot of um, the Arrakis two moons uh, in front of that fiery orange sun. And I think that lends credits to the, to the uh, theory that we're going to get some sort of eclipse. <laughs> hey, those moons are moving, uh, Marcus. <laughs> They're moving quick. Yeah. Yeah, and and we, we had some some interesting discussion in in the comments, and um, one one of the the points was about that we we have when we see the scenes with with fade, it's like all black, devoid of color, and then we when we see the the, the scenes with Paul, it's like that bright orange, like re really colorful, like showing that they are like the opposition uh, to each other, and at least for the trailer, that seems to be the case, right? Because like in all these these scenes with with fade, it's it's really dark. Um, and then when we see uh, Paul in, in certain of the, these, these scenes, either in the background or like when, when he's uh, fighting the orange background. So, and then uh, like, as, as we'll, we'll get to later, that seems to come come together at the end as well. Then uh, we see uh, Fade and Mar Margot. And uh, as Garen was alluding to, um, the Benjamins have plans here, right? Because uh, Paul was potentially going to be the, the Quizzes Hadrak because... Uh, Lady Jessica had gone against the wishes of the Bene Gesserit and, and given Duke Leto a son. Uh, but then now that he's out of the picture, the Bene Gesserit have to continue their, their plan, right? So they're going back to that original route and looking for another path forward. So it's basically, um, yeah, so Margot plainly, she, she plans to get impregnated by uh, uh, by Fade so that they can continue that that path uh, and realize the quiz is Hadarak. Then we have another scene that uh, could be several things. So it's uh, Chani, she's looking really anxiously out in the desert. Maybe she's received worrying news. Could she be hearing news of Paul, uh, like who's taken the water of life and he's in the, in the coma? So maybe she's hearing about that and she's very worried about him. The other thing I'm thinking of here, what, what if she's um, heard about an, an attack uh, in the siege where her son is? Right, because they 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 had the 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 child, uh, which is uh, Leto the first. Yeah, yeah, we, we we said it's all it's all all books uh, spoilers. So yeah, what what if that's the, the the case here? So she's learning about it, and it like I'm I'm expecting that Villeneuve is gonna keep that that scene. I really I really really hope so. With with uh, someone like Zendaya, who's you know won the Emmy awards for for roles like with, with really emotional roles and a lot of drama, I can really imagine her uh, bring that that scene to life on screen. Where in the book it was you know just a few few lines and we didn't get uh, much emotion about that. So Marcus, I really love your detective Erwan theory <laughs> that she's going to go see maybe on Arrakis and find out. Paul Atreides is still alive and I really hope that they keep the Lido the first storyline I didn't want to talk about it before 
but since you you opened the bag, <laughs> uh, it is so crucial for so many reasons. Just for this movie, for Paul's motivation, also. You think he's pissed now? Just wait. <laughs> you know, and it's also so important when Leo the Second is born. It is so crucial, and I really hope that the studios let Denis really put that scene in there. And as heartbreaking as it should be, it should we should all be crying at that moment and really feel what Paul and Shawnee, you know, feel. And I didn't think about her reacting to Lidl's, Lidl the first, you know, finding out what's going on with that. Going back to that um, scene with uh, Shish Hockley, um, uh, I'm, I'm th thinking, you know, the, the trailer makes makes it seem like it's related to uh, to Irlan, the, the way it, it cuts, but it could be, you know, that they're just, you know, it's, it's trailer deception. I'm thinking if it's not related to that, it could be that uh, Shish Hockley was one of the Fremen who was defending uh, Leto, and that, that, that that's one of the moments. So, but yeah. Uh, a, a lot of a lot of possibilities in just these these quick quick shots. So I, I I like that they they gave us like you know just the quick shots so that we could uh, you know think of the possibilities based on what we know from from the book. But there's still so so much unknowns here. Just one one theory on uh, Shishakli's uh, shot there where she's being captured by the Harkonnens. Johnny, you're exactly right. In fact, standing behind Shishakli are those Harkonnen uh, bulbous you know kind of helmets. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, costumes and so I think that's exactly right that that's who Paul is fighting in the scene that I talked about earlier because there they are standing behind Shishakli in that image. Moving to the next section here um, just mention we get another shot of, of uh, Paul riding a sandworm um, now what I will say here is that this is definitely not this is I mean this is my speculation but I'll just say it this is definitely not the earlier sequence that we saw um this is definitely not the same worm <laughs> so that's all i'll say about that but it looks very very cool um and looks great the way they have framed and kind of composed that shot there so really excited about that and then uh we get this um really quick interesting exchange between lady jessica and paul it's just a shot reverse shot of jessica saying we gave them something to hope for and she is clearly full-blown reverend mother at this point she has the headdress her eyes are blue she has the tattoos on her face um which again i think great designs i think again between costume design hair and makeup designs i think they've really gone to the next level and really excited that especially with the fremen culture they're really bringing that to life and then with the uh, the next shot we get paul saying uh that's not hope <laughs> and screaming it actually and um from what i can see here i mean again we're just taking a look at kind of a glance it's hard to tell i think we maybe discussed this slightly last week it's hard to tell what um or what when rather this is taking place like what part of the movie it's in um because with her being the reverend mother it would have to be i would think halfway through or maybe in the second part of the movie but Paul, and again, it's editing trickery. Maybe the effects aren't all completed, hard to say. But it looks like he, I mean, his eyes aren't clearly blue in this image. Um, it might be sometime between when she becomes Reverend Mother and when he decides to do some drastic things for himself. Um, so that could be it. Or it also, the way it's edited and the way he appears in this shot and how it leads into the next few, you know, we see after this 
back and forth, which in and of itself, I think the back and forth is fantastic and great to have in here because it's again bringing to the surface with all this excitement, with all the swashbuckling of riding the sandworms and these epic fight sentences, there's some really uh, disturbing um, implications and interesting character um, work going on with Paul in particular, and Lady Jessica for that matter. Um, but the uh, following shot shows Paul wearing essentially the same outfit and looking pretty much like in the same condition. He goes up to the uh, cliffside um, and as he goes up to the cliffside, we see him from behind. We see his kind of cape billowing and he walks up. And I love this shot because, again, it is in slow motion, which is interesting. I wonder if that's going to be the same way it's in the, the movie. Um, I'm wondering, you know, I'm just imagining like what's Hans Zimmer's score going to be like during the scene and like how is that going to transition into like what, whatever the next section is. Um, but I think it's great because it's just him walking slowly. He has his knife out. And you just see it's in a shallow focus. You can't really see the details beyond the, the cliff. But uh, you can see that there's thousands of figures standing on this rock formation and on the hillside. And there's like a cave behind them or a siege maybe. It cuts right into one of the last shots here um, of, well, it's a great, great shot. Um, nothing like I expected. I don't know. I would like to hear your guys' thoughts on that. This shot of the two, and when I say two, I'm talking about Paul and Fade, of these two squaring off um, for their their duel, I guess you could say here. Um, Paul gets into his stance. He has his knife extended in front of him. Fade, totally different stance. He's just standing like almost straight up. He has his knife down at his side. Um, and he's, you know, you can see this this difference in stature and size and physicality between Austin Butler's fade and and Chalamet as as Paul, which I think is it's really accentuated by the silhouette um, with the backlighting going on. I think that's great, and also the set design is really cool. I believe this might be part of like the Arakeen residence. Um, it looks very similar to those sets we saw in part one. Could be something different, but uh, you can see there's the same brutalist architecture. There's kind of overhanging, like blocked off um parts of the of the ceiling and then on each side you can see figures that are also in silhouette and very much dark i'm sure maybe on the left gurney could be standing over there or maybe there's other characters fremen on the other side um but yeah i think i just really like i i don't know how i expected them to pull off the scene or how it was going to be lit or, or framed or anything but i really love the lighting and um you know we get this this great line from paul that he's kind of taking from from Jamis in part one, where he says, may thy knife chip and shatter, which is, I guess, kind of essentially this Fremen proverb um, that he says to fade it before they kind of uh, square off. And he does the same kind of salute with the, the Chris knife to his forehead, which we saw implicated. It's really interesting kind of thinking about it now in context, because it's not something that's in the books, from my understanding. It's actually something that Jason Momoa decided to use because it meant something to him and his heritage and then also his children and he knew that if he did that in the movie that they would recognize that and so i think it's just kind of cool that the guy that plays duncan idaho introduces this thing that's just personal to him and then we see paul pick it up within the context of the movie and then he uses it later in part one and now we're seeing it basically come to fruition here at the very end so um i just love everything and even the way that paul says that line like i don't know if they're doing something like altering augmenting his voice somehow or what's going on but he just sounds so different 
Um, he's he's in full mod deep mode, as uh, Villeneuve might say. So I just love, really love that kind of glimpse of something that's uh, a big, big, big scene, of course, for the the overall story. Yeah, he's probably using the voice, right? <laughs> he very well may be, right? Yeah. You know that um, scene when he puts up the knife. I obviously thought of Duncan, and I was like, "Well, it makes sense because Duncan and Gurney trained Paul." So, you know, it might be a salute also for respecting Duncan. Uh, what I want out of that scene is, if you're a fan of the 84 movie, I want Austin Butler to scream, I will kill him. <laughs> very much like <laughs> did. Yeah. Simon is, we don't want that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gorgeous scene. And then finally, we get... Uh, Fool, Paul, Modid, Atreides, putting his knife up, saluting the Fremen soldiers. Uh, and then this is before the final battle. You know, it's so amazing because as many time I've seen the 84 movie and we have Kyle McLaughlin doing that scene, you know, also they're underground. I love that. And this, what looks like they're out in the field. They're out on Arrakis, they're not somewhere hidden. And just the amount of soldiers, I, I'm thinking this has to be a CGI shot, but with the knee, you never know. <laughs> but when I saw this scene, so many moons ago, I, I used to play hockey and I had a CD man before, you know, iPods were a thin and I had Iron Maiden on there and there's a great Iron Maiden dune song and every time i heard that song that's what i pictured <laughs> i pictured that scene just of paul raising his knife and going like we're going to battle it is paul showing that he is the leader of these people and it's great because it starts off slowly kind of like this beautiful romantic scene with paul and chani to this all out oh i better pay attention to this trailer and rewatch it because it's going to get serious and it's going to get dark. It's going to get messed up. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said last week, I I love, I love this trailer. And something we don't, I don't think we talked about last week. We talked about it off air. But someone noticed that there was a new Atreides flag in that scene. So it's interesting. Just the contrast, and I think the the storytelling in the trailer alone, the fact that it opens. I mean, we ended part one with uh, Lady Jessica and Paul being taken in by the Fremen, him really meeting Chani and like forming this some sort of like initial bond, um, her smiling to him at the end, that sort of thing. And so the trailer basically picks up right where it left off. I mean, you're expecting him to be with Chani. People want to see Chalamet and Zendaya together, obviously. Um, but you get this quaint quiet little kind of almost flirty kind of romantic scene on this dune it's just these two figures paul and chani who are pivotal to the the story of dune of course and they're just by themselves and it's like perfect it's tranquil they're out there in the desert and then all these all these crazy things happen in the trailer you see all sorts of drama and action and what does it cap the trailer off with it caps it off with paul by himself above all the Fremen, raising his knife, rallying them. And it just kind of has its own little arc and story in it. And I think that, again, even from that 
bookend of that shot first one to the last one is just a nice little summation of kind of what dune is all about and uh for good or for for bad i would say for the fremen uh and paul um, i think it's just it's a great way to kind of close it off and and get people excited i think to to see this yeah and that, that final shot is, is is basically the beginning of the jihad right it's it's there, there's so much uh that's that's going to come out of that yeah, and one one thing uh like um uh, about uh, Johnny, you were mentioning like the um, scene with, with Paul and, and Jessica that that's you know likely towards towards the, the latter half of, of of the movie, and yeah, I, I really like how, how they're they're exploring that because um, Paul and and Jessica they have like such a complicated relationship. Like if if you if you read read the book, so of course uh, you know mother and son they, they they really care about, but at the same time they're they're enemies. Like I was just um, uh, pulling up one of the quotes uh, from the book that that Paul. Paul says, uh, my mother is my enemy. She does not know it, but she is. She is bringing the jihad. She bore me. She trained me. She is my enemy. So like seeing seeing how he explores that further, that, that's going to be, be really interesting. I've been going back and rereading the second half of the book. And I just read that line the other night. And it's <laughs> so important that everyone's like, oh, Paul brought this on. He did, but he was kind of forced to bring it on because of Lady <laughs> Jessica, I think deep inside, Paul didn't want to do it, but he knew he had to do it for the greater good. And then we'll get into a golden path in like three <laughs> books, but that's a whole different story. Um, yeah, no, that's 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 funny, Simon. I'm glad you pointed that out. The, the last thing I just, again, kind of struck me is that I'm thinking of how Villeneuve as a, as a filmmaker and storyteller and, and how he can be subversive and surprising and you know, everything that Dune kind of represents. Um, I, I think it'll be really interesting because in a typical action adventure war movie, and he's described this as an action-packed kind of war movie, um, which I am very excited to see how he executes all of that because he's never really done that before. But in these types of movies, Return of the King, um, you know, uh, maybe even the most recent Avatar or the first Avatar, just these big movies we have big action battles at the end the last hour of the movie starts they're rallying the troops they're going into battle everyone in the audience is just stoked they're ready to see the fight they're ready they're rooting for the you know the good guys to go ahead and win i'm just imagining if paul and jessica are having this conversation and paul is just like no this is terrible like this i'm betraying like he's he's going down the wrong path etc and and then he just goes and rallies these troops. And I'm just imagining the last hour playing out in the audience just being like, oh, God, like, I actually don't really want to see this happen. Um, like, what is what are going to be the consequences of this based on these images and these conversations between Paul and Jessica and, and et cetera. So it's going to be a really interesting vibe, I think, especially watching it the first time and like with the, an audience that may not may not be familiar with Dune, seeing how Villeneuve might play with kind of the expectations and the tone of something where you're going into a big bloody battle and why are you doing that? And what does that even mean? Um, I think it's just, it's going to be really, I, I can't wait. You know, I think we all are obviously on the same page with that, but um, there's just so much to dive into with this trailer, obviously, as we've just spent a lot of time digesting, but um, really good points. I think all around. I wonder if one of the keywords on IMDb will be mommy issues. <laughs> no but you're right like what are people's reaction going to be like 
like, are they going to look at Jessica as a villain, maybe even? It, I like that this trailer doesn't reveal those epic war scenes, those epic mm. uh, war battles, but it alludes to it with just these vast numbers of, of Fremen. Mm. And, and uh, I can't remember where I heard this, but uh, it is part of the book where Fremen don't sheath their knives until they're bloodied with with their enemy's blood and so you see these thousands of of uh, yeah. knives going into the in, in, toward the sky and that means that many harkonnen and others are going to die you know so this is really <laughs> there's a lot of death there's going to be a lot of <laughs> intensity here but this is a, a a pivotal part of the story and the character arc of paul so i i really do I'm going to be fascinated to see, like Johnny was saying, how does Villeneuve weave the epic battle action part of this story with what's really going on behind the scenes with Paul and other key characters? Um, because it's complex. It's not Star Wars. It's not clearly black and white. And uh, right. it's going to be really fascinating to see how he he pulls that off. In the first movie, when, when we were on Giddy Prime, most of the scenes were in indoors, right? It was basically, you know, we, we met the, the Baron and, and Ravon and, and like there there was relatively normal color. Uh, but but there's also the, the idea that because of uh, Getty Prime's son, um, that it um, can like re remove the color that that's uh, so when fate is fighting in a, in a daytime, that's the reason why it's, it's black and white. So not necessarily because of uh, visions, but just because of you know like he's he's in the bright daylight but the sun is is shining differently like either because of the sun itself or something in the in the atmosphere uh so so that that could be one one of the reasons for that yeah i think marcus that's a great point um which i think we've kind of like alluded to or other people have mentioned but i think that's probably the most like accurate probably going to be the most like uh, true to what we actually see in the movie i think people are just and Garen, you mentioned that you weren't like the biggest fan of it because you described it as like jarring. Like it is very different from everything else you see in the, in the trailer. Um, and I definitely understand that obviously in the terms of the movie, when you're seeing a sequence that plays out over 10 minutes or something, if you show up on Getty prime and it's outdoors and that's just, you can see how it's lit and you understand. I think obviously Villeneuve, you know, he's taking up another level. He's trying to do something more dramatic with more, style maybe than even the first one which was obviously already very um you know technically incredible but i think that yeah it makes sense based on and he's always especially with the harkonnens and getty prime he's always been keyed in on like building the world in a way that makes sense and environmentally speaking especially when you can compare we talk about environment you know arrakis versus caladan versus getty prime trying to establish a very different aesthetics and different uh you know uh visual cues and that was something that even the, the costume designer Jacqueline West mentioned recently she said there's really three key planets um and you want very different looks and we really want to try to establish something different for all of them and doing something where the way the sun is set up in the solar system and the way the environment the atmosphere it would make sense that it would just be very stark as far as the lighting and the exposure and then they just choose to film it in a way that highlights that. And I think that's just a really cool, could be a really interesting way. Could it be visions? Yes. Could it be something else? Um, potentially, but yeah, I think that that, that makes sense. And 
that's just another thing that makes me really excited to see between that, the orange shoes we got, which we still can't explain. Um, and we haven't gotten any glimpses really, truly of um, the planet, the home world of House Carino yet. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really excited to see what that aesthetic is going to look like. I would presume it's going to be very different from Arrakis or Getty Prime. I think we have some notion of what it might be. So um, that'll be really cool. But that, that's just an example. We've talked about all the things in the trailer. A lot of things that are not in the trailer, Garen mentioned the last hour, probably we're expecting with a lot of action and battles. Um, no Emperor with Christopher Walken. They're saving that, which is great. No, again, his homeworld, House Carino's homeworld, not getting really any of that um, and not getting any additional uh, Atreides characters, let's say. So I think uh, there's uh, plenty, plenty, plenty to uh, save for future trailers and the movie itself. So um, anyone worried about that? If you're not a book reader is worried in that regard definitely don't be because it's it's uh it's gonna be packed i'm very curious now watching the trailer and talking about it in depth like he i think he mentioned Villeneuve that the movie would probably comp be comparable to the first one as far as the runtime but i am wondering if there's any flexibility or if they've changed that at all or if it's going to be about the same the first movie was quite long i mean it was two hours 30 40 minutes um I could see this one being maybe 245 or something like that. But um, yeah, that's, it's going to be really, really interesting to see uh, how this all plays out. And, and as, as Garen said, having the action and the spectacle balance with all the complexities of the story, which is only going to get more complex really from part one in this, in this installment. Yeah. So yeah, it feel, feels like we, we could just talk about the, this trailer for, for another uh, hour or, or so easily, but uh, yeah, we're going to, wrap it up for today so um yeah let, let, let us know is, is there anything that um that you think we we missed uh, what are your theories uh, in terms of the the, the themes what what sort of those short scenes uh, could mean uh, let us know in the comments and uh yeah maybe we'll discuss that in uh, more in upcoming episodes uh so yeah let's go ahead and sign off simon uh here you can follow me on socials at sdowdy pretty much everywhere uh i am a big fan of christopher walken and one of my favorite Christopher Walken phrase ever is the word when he goes, the Foo Fighters. So <laughs> I, I can't wait until I hear him say Fighters. Like on Saturday Night Live, if you uh, want to laugh, look up Dave Grohl doing his impression of Christopher Walken introducing the, the Foo Fighters. Wow. Sensational. Um, yes, thank you all so much for watching once again. Staying tuned. Um, please, yes, leave your thoughts below. We'd love to hop in there and have a conversation, chat back about uh, what you think about the trailer. It's Johnny Sobchek, as always. You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, all that good stuff at Johnny Sobchek. And uh, we'll see you next time. Uh, yeah, I'm, it's Garen. I can be, you can follow me on uh, Twitter at uh, Dune Companion. Um, just excited to engage with all of you. Uh, please uh, ask us questions. Give us feedback. Uh, we just we love talking about this, but we we also really want to engage with all of you. So so thanks for watching. Yeah, and this is Marcus Gabriel, your editor at DuneNewsNet.com. Uh, you can find me writing there. Um, also follow our socials at DuneNewsNet on uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, anywhere that uh, you can find us. So yeah, it's been a been a great episode, guys. Uh, looking forward to talking to everybody next week. We hope you've enjoyed Dune Talk. Remember to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications so you know when the next episode drops. 
Stay tuned to doomnewsnet.com and add us to your social feeds. Be the first to hear breaking news and reviews.